Hello, and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Samuel Remini. He's an on-resident fellow at Gulf International Forum and completed his doctorate at the University of Oxford's Department of Politics and International Relations in March of this year. A geopolitical analyst and commentator, he's a regular contributor to the Washington Post, El Monitor, Foreign Policy, and the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Our conversation focuses on Russia in the Middle East. Sam, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much, Bill, for inviting me back. Let me begin with uh, something that HRH Prince Hassan of Jordan, who was a guest in our podcast about a month ago, uh, said to me about the campaign of Catherine the Great in the Levant. He was uh, reminding us that Russia has had a long imperial ambition in the region. And indeed, at one point during the 1768-74 Russo-Turkish War, occupied Beirut. I think that's worth remembering when we look at just what Vladimir Putin has achieved. So I want to ask you to break that down in some detail in just a minute. But right now, can you give us the macro view on Russia in MENA? Yes, I think that uh, that was a very astute observation from uh, Princess Anne. Russia's uh, current resurgence in the Middle East, which began with their military intervention in Syria, is very much rooted in the shadow of the past. It's very much rooted in their imperial era access and uh, standing as a Mediterranean power, as well as, of course, their uh, Soviet-era history as a guardian and supporter of Arab nationalist movements. But as a macro level, uh, where is Russia standing in the Middle East? I would say that uh, Russia, first of all, is not, should not be considered to be a great power, pure competitor to the United States or potentially down in the line the future China. Instead, Russia is not embracing the role of a security guarantor and has got a relatively limited economic footprint in the region. But what it has maximized and what it has excelled in is effectively establishing positive relations with every major regional power in the Middle East and the smaller states in between. It can balance and maintain good relations with Israel and Iran and shuttle between them. It can balance between Iran and Saudi Arabia and shuttle between them, Turkey and Egypt, and engage with both of them. And it's been able to do that through moments of severe crisis, like the aftermath of the 2013 coup and the... uh, this is the aftermath of the Syrian civil war and the Qatar blockade. And that has been its real uh, biggest strength, its ability to engage flexibly with everyone and extract economic deals and gain diplomatic leverage with all those powers. Also, of course, they uh, do have a growing trade and investment presence in the region that's particularly being triggered by the uh, Russian Direct Investment Fund and some of its engagements that we've seen in the Gulf, particularly with the United Arab Emirates. And they've managed to co-opt regional players to advance their goals very effectively, whether it be the UAE in Libya, which finances their private military contractors, or the, uh, the Iranians in Syria. So it's been a very effective strategy of uh, basically being friends with everyone, kind of uh, enemies with none, but also alliances with none. That's given them a freedom of action that the United States would envy, but not necessarily all that much strategic depth in my view. Would it be fair to say, Sam, that the first big breakthrough in Putin's MENA strategy was in Syria? And and if so, what benefits have the Russians achieved from that Syria engagement? I would say absolutely. The uh, starting point for the modern resurgence of Russia's Middle Eastern uh, strategy was certainly Syria, because uh, the relationship between Russia and Syria was almost emblematic of Russia's broader standing in the region. So during the 1990s, the Russian-Syrian relationship, 
was embroiled and derailed by uh, an ongoing debt dispute that dated back to the Soviet era. And that was a very similar debt dispute that also restricted some of their old partnerships with Libya and Yemen and uh, was symptomatic of a broader disengagement with the Middle East. In 2005, after the uh, Cedar Revolution and uh, Bashar al-Assad was uh, implicated in the assassination of Rafiq Hariri, uh, he found himself basically all alone and he was struggling for international partners, and Russia came in to save him as the only great power that was really willing to engage with them. And uh, that was also a symbolic moment that marked Russia's return as both an anti-Western force and as a rising great power in the Middle East. So again, that was emblematic of Russia's broader regional ambitions. And then their intervention in Syria during the Civil War really reaffirmed their role. I think that they have achieved a number of benefits with respect to uh, their intervention in Syria. The first is obviously material. They now have two bases in the Mediterranean. Tartus, which was just a resupply facility before the war, has now been modernized to the point at which it can keep uh, nuclear-capable bombers on, as was announced recently. You have Kamemim, which is a major air base that is an important uh, means of projecting power. So that, that really ensconces their role as a Mediterranean power, once again, which was what I guess Prince Hassan was alluding to as well. Secondly, they have shown to, to the entire region that they, they can play a decisive role in changing the outcome of a Middle Eastern conflict. And if you look at a public opinion surveys amongst uh, yeah, young, uh, young Arabs, so if you look at the Arab Youth Survey, for example, from the Wilson Center that's been published over the past three years, you see a plurality of Arabs actually view Russia's military intervention in Syria as the most decisive intervention by a great power in the Middle East since the United States in the 1991 Gulf War. So that has really elevated and amplified Russian standing as a great power because it can actually be a game changer in a military setting. Domestically, I think the benefits have also been profound. Uh, Vladimir Putin has really been able to rally the domestic population around the threat of extremism in Syria and the fact that they were countering uh, ISIS and they were countering insurgencies and extremism. Of course, the vast majority of the people that they actually killed, 92% of the airstrikes, were against Syrian rebels who had nothing to do with those movements. But it really showed a domestic population that he was taking a decisive action against this transnational Islamist threat, which has been something that they've been afraid of ever since the separatist wars in Chechnya. And moreover, uh, the Syrian civil war also showed uh, the modernization of the Russian military, which uh, a plurality of Russians viewed to be the crowning achievement of the past decade, first shown in Crimea, and then shown even more decisively in Syria. And that has transactional implications too, because if you show that your weaponry is working effectively in Syria, whether it be Pantsir S-1 missile defense systems, S-300s, Russian fighter jets, they can export that equipment across the Middle Eastern region. So people like Egypt are willing to buy the Su-35. Turkey's even considering buying those jets. So there's a lot of uh, secondary benefits that have come from that to Putin's domestic position, their international arms sales, their standing on the Mediterranean, and just their overall perception as a great power, not to mention their ability to ensconce alliances around this, especially with Iran, where they've established a distribution of labor, where Iran basically does the brunt of the work on the ground, Russia provides air support, and also advances Assad's agenda diplomatically. And they've done this, Putin's done this, with a relatively small investment of, of, of in terms of of, of weapons and, and, and that sort of support. And that's the extraordinary thing. I mean, the uh, 
Russian military intervention in Syria is probably costing at a maximum to be $2 billion a year. If you compare that to Iran's military intervention, they spent up to $30 billion on the ground to support Assad, and Russia is on the front line ahead of Iran uh, in most of the uh, preliminary reconstruction contracts, whether that be phosphates, whether that be oil, whether that be uh, agriculture. And, and the Americans, if you look at the vast expenditure that they've poured into the Middle East, which of course shapes the, their policy now of, of trying to disengage militarily. But look, I, I want to ask you about another theater of war, Libya. And, and as you mentioned, Putin has used mercenary cover to good effect there as well, hasn't he? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, uh, the Libya was certainly an important theater for Russia to return to in the Middle East because it was, first of all, one of the first theaters that uh, Vladimir Putin really started to develop positive relations with during the uh, mid-2000s. So Vladimir Putin visited Tripoli in 2008 and Muammar Gaddafi followed by visiting Russia at the end of that year. And they engaged on a number of important issues. So they cleared up their Soviet-era debt the uh, Gaddafi offered uh, Russia a provisional naval base in Benghazi. They uh, also uh, began uh, constructing for via Russian railways an uh, infrastructure project that extended across the country from Benghazi to Sirte. And then the civil war broke out in 2011 and the revolution. And Russia, which had aligned uh, with Gaddafi and then uh, backed the, uh, the, the no-fly zone, but had been all over the place on its position, uh, was not seen by the new National Transitional Council as something that was really loyal enough to the opposition. So they lost uh, uh, contracts, and they lost business, and then for about five years they were really frozen out of anything resembling an impactful or influential role in Libya. This military intervention has been successful because it's brought Russia back into the game as a major stakeholder and arguably an indispensable stakeholder that can engage with all of Russia's, uh, Libya's major factions. So they have close relations with the anti-systemic actors like Khalifa Haftar, Mohammed al-Khani and his brigade, the uh, Agula Saleh, who was the uh, former House of Representatives speaker, and uh, Saif Gaddafi and, and the Green Movement, as they call them, the Loyalists. But also, Russia has maintained close ties with the government in Tripoli, Abdul Dabeba, the government of National Unity Prime Minister, is actually somebody who's known to them. So that's why they, they called the, when he visited Moscow, he was calling the Russians a friendly country. And they've been able to uh, leverage that very effectively. The mercenary position has been a, a part of that broader strategy. But I don't think that we should necessarily view their mercenary deployments as being aimed at necessarily supporting unconditionally Haftar's takeover of Tripoli. There's a lot of discontent within the Russian foreign policy establishment about Khalifa Haftar. From my interviews... Uh, I found that the Russian foreign ministry officials were very wary about the reputational cost of using mercenaries. And even within the Russian defense ministry, which was largely behind him, there were some elements who viewed him to be unpredictable, to be an inadequate general, to be basically buying off tribes with UAE support, but not necessarily winning battles, so to speak. So not really a figure he could ever unite the country under his leadership. So it, the, instead, I think we should view the mercenaries' uh, involvement as a success in making Russia indispensable, as I said earlier much like their ability to engage with all the Libyan factions and to really fulfill the dream that Putin had in 2008 of really restoring Russia as a major player in this critically important region with the Mediterranean uh, access and with that uh, nationwide reconstruction contracts. The uh, Wagner Group, however, and the mercenaries have really been a mixed bag in terms of military effectiveness. 
Much like in Syria, they've done very well inside an embedded militia, providing logistical support, engaging in defensive responsibility, guarding bases. And that's why they, they, I think they excelled from 2017 on until early 2020, because they were mostly in those roles. In a forward-based uh, offensive capacity, they've proven to be much less effective, and they were quite surprisingly easily overrun by Turkey, the GNA, and their militias, the Syrian militias in, in Al-Wattiyah base and other strategic locations. So from a military standpoint, it's been something of a mixed bag, but in terms of ensconcing Russia as a, a major player in Libya, and also establishing a crucial partnership with the UAE, which is funding them, a diplomatic standpoint, the mercenary involvement has been, I think, nothing less than a resounding success from Russia's point of view. Yeah, and you make an interesting point there that the UAE is, is funding the uh, right. the Wagner Group, which, which again plays well. I mean, what strikes me as I'm listening to you, Sam, is the the flexibility and the and and the astuteness and the adeptness and the agility of uh, Russian uh, foreign policy approaches in in these very complicated uh, regions and theaters of war. But but Putin's not just uh, playing the war game. I mean, he uh, as you as you recently wrote in Al Monitor. He's offered himself as a peacemaker in the uh, Israeli-Gaza situation. What do you think he's trying to achieve with that initiative, and, and do you think it is likely to work? Well, I think, you know, from my uh, interviews in Moscow, like uh, during the Israel-Gaza conflict, I was seeing a lot of optimism that Russia could play a role as a major international stakeholder. So there's a real genuine desire in Russia that to revive the Middle Eastern Quartet. And that's an important uh, uh, forum for the Russians because it gives them parity and equality with the United States, the European Union, and the United Nations as this kind of co-guarantor and this uh, uh, in indispensable power. So if you combine that with their decisive diplomatic role in Syria, where they're the co-guarantor of the Astana process, with this and their potentially important diplomatic role in the upcoming Berlin Conference in Libya, that gives them a really interesting portfolio of great power, uh, status projection, and diplomatic achievement in the Middle East. Also, the Russians are leveraging the fact that they can, once again, balance between vari a variety of factions in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. They have close relations with the Israeli right, which are formed in part because of uh, the diasporic population. Up to one million people in Israel are of Russian heritage, so that's an uh, important bond. They have, they, have, they have close ties with Netanyahu, and I suspect that those ties will continue under the new coalition government of Bennett and, and Lapid, because Russia really hasn't taken sides inside Israeli politics. They also, have remarkably, managed to maintain close relations with all the Palestinian factions. They can engage with Fatah, they can engage with Islamic Jihad, and they also are Hamas regulars in Russia. I mean, uh, Khaled Mashal sent a delegation in this fall to talk about intra-Palestinian uh, negotiations with Moscow being the host. And it's really remarkable that Russia's maintained a close relationship with Hamas because the Muslim Brotherhood, which up until 2017 Hamas was legally bound to, is actually designated in Russia as a terrorist organization. They were the first country in the world to designate them as that, ahead of the United Arab Emirates even. So uh, it's really a remarkable achievement, uh, once again, in terms of balancing a variety of players and in terms of establishing a a potentially important diplomatic role via the Middle East Quartet as a major, major power. Will they succeed, though? Will they be able to achieve what others haven't? That's where it gets tricky, and that's where it gets uh, difficult. 
inside Russia, the diplomatic establishment, I was speaking to Andrei Baklanov, who was the former Russian ambassador to Saudi Arabia, who was very involved in the current uh, diplomatic processes. And he was saying that we don't believe the ceasefire is going to last, first of all. And second of all, we truly see the European Union and the United Nations as something of deadweights. So if we were to revive this, it would have to be the Middle East Quartet leading to a U.S.-Russian format that would allow both of us to kind of work this out. Very much like how the Soviet Union and the Americans worked it out at the Madrid Peace Conference 30 years ago in 1991, which is still a reference point for Russians today. So they are they're viewing that U.S.-Russia dialogue with some promise. How is Russia's uh, role perceived? It's unclear. Inside Israel, I was speaking to some Israeli uh, ex-officials and they were and officials. They were arguing that Russia's engagement with Hamas and Islamic Jihad means that they're a partner that's not to be trusted because they're double dealing with everyone. When you speak to Palestinians, they say the two initiatives that Russia wants to promote, the Middle East Quartet and the Arab Peace Initiative, are locked in the 1990s. They're living in the past. The two-state solution, as was imagined then, is not a reality on the ground due to the Israeli settlements. So I think that they'll find a very hard time getting actual leverage or achieving anything tangible in Israel and Palestine, but they certainly will be able to project themselves as once again a flexible diplomatic actor and as a great power that's on par with the leading powers in the world, including the United States. Now, look, uh, relations with the Gulf states, uh, I think possibly the most intriguing is that with the UAE, joint partners, uh, as you mentioned, in backing uh, Haftar in Libya. But, but how is that relationship going? I mean, I think of Vladimir Putin and Mara bin Zayed, the Abu Dhabi Crown Prince, as an intriguing pair, but uh, perhaps they're, they're more of, of the odd couple. Yeah, I think that Russia's uh, involvement on the Arabian Peninsula is one of the most fascinating aspects of Russia's uh, resurgence in the Middle East. And because if, if you look back at this, like uh, three decades ago, they were uh, largely clashing with each other in a proxy war in the Soviet war in Afghanistan. There was all the hangover of the legacies of, uh, of the Cold War, uh, the Soviet Union representing communism and the Gulf monarchies being anti-communist American allies. And then in the 1990s, you had Chechnya, and then the next decade you had Syria, right? You've had seemingly one crisis after another. And even more amazingly, Russia has been able to rapidly expand its partnerships with Iran and Turkey. At the very same time, it's been expanding its relations with the Gulf monarchies. So this is just one of the most unexpected and fascinating turns in Russia's Middle Eastern policy. With respect to the relationship between Russia and the UAE, that is a, a relationship that's grounded on a whole variety of, of factors. It was elevated to a strategic partnership in June of 2018 on the backs of their uh, growing investment cooperation, $2 billion with an intention of $7 billion in direct investments uh, in the future. The last is something of a moving target because Russia always overpromises on the investment side and then generally tends to not deliver very much. But uh, there's also uh, cooperation on counterterrorism and, and, and there's genuine ideational synergies between Russia and the Emirates. So both Russia and the UAE are much more willing to support uh, this notion of authoritarian stability in the Middle East. So their joint cooperation in Libya and support of Haftar was very much aimed at uh, supporting this kind of uh, notion of a stable autocratic or centralized power in the Middle East. I think the UAE were more worried about the uh, Muslim Brotherhood or Islamist movements taking control in Tripoli and were wanting to see a Sisi-style government taking over, so I think they were more wedded to Haftar than the uh, Russians were. But the Russians liked the idea of kind of suppressing the democratic process because the democratic process brings unpredictability. 
So th that was kind of a bonding there. The Emirates have also uh, recognized uh, Bashar al-Assad's legitimacy in Syria. A senior Emirati diplomat has praised his wise leadership even. And uh, the UAE has supported Russia on Assad's return to the Arab League, Syrian reconstruction, opposing the Caesar Civilian Production Act sanctions imposed by the United States. So in Syria too, that authoritarian stability partnership appears to be uh, strengthening uh, very strongly. And moreover, the UAE is looking at a multipolar world order. It's looking at a world order with many centers of power, and has been doing so since the 1990s. And Russia is an important center of power in that world order in, in Mohammed bin Zayed's vision. So the UAE does not just want to have a close alliance with the United States and Europe, but also wants to engage with China and India and Russia as to, to make it a truly global force. And Russia's played into that very well. It's interesting to note that Yevgeny Primakov, the former foreign minister of the UAE, uh, of Russia, is a very popular figure amongst the Emirati foreign policy establishment, precisely because he represents that multipolar world order. And it's a relationship that's been around for a long time. The Emiratis actually established diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union in 1985 and 1986 at an embassy level. And that was while the Saudis and the Soviets were really in a dogfight over uh, communism in Afghanistan. So this is a partnership that's lasted a surprisingly long time. The uh, Russians even talked to the Emiratis before the Iraq war about defusing the situation. And now it's really blossomed to a whole new level because of their interventions in Libya and Syria, their common positions, and the ideational synergies that I just mentioned. And what about Mohammed bin Salman and where does he factor into uh, Putin's scheme? So uh, Mohammed bin Salman is a figure that the Russians uh, tend to blow hot and cold with. So uh, in public, obviously, there's a very positive and there's a very uh, uh, close, uh, superficial relationship between Vladimir Putin and him. So whether it be the high five after the Khashoggi assassination, or whether it be the two of them sitting at the World Cup in, uh, in Russia in 2018, and then uh, talking about investment deals after. So there's that uh, very positive uh, public relationship that's there. Privately, there's actually a lot of concern about Mohammed bin Sal Salman's uh, impulsive tendencies, his erratic tendencies, and his potential to be uh, destabilizing. And there's not a whole lot of respect, I think, for his leadership in some ways. So when I speak to Russian diplomats, they say, yeah, the Putin Mohammed bin Salman relationship is, uh, is superficially close, but it does not compare in terms of consultation or breadth or depth like what Putin has with the King of Jordan, a relationship with mutual, of mutual respect that he has with King Abdullah II. So the Russians publicly uh, embrace him, but privately they're actually quite concerned about him. The one thing they do admire about him though, and I do see through uh, speaking to uh, Russian uh, intellectuals like Vitaly Nomkin and Alexei Vasilyev, uh, which is both of them are famous Russian uh, Middle Eastern academics who have also advised the government on policy at various levels, is that they admire his commitment to reform. And they admire the fact that he is trying to change the socioeconomic structure in Saudi Arabia, reduce the influence of the Islamist clerics, because the Russians view those Islamist clerics and what transnational Wahhabism as a, a security threat to Central Asia and their own southern flank. And so that, that is something that they view quite positively. Russia-Saudi relations at a bilateral level, if you take the strip away the personalities, has got some real foundations for growth. I think the Saudi-Syrian normalization will probably take place over the coming years now that Assad has been just re-elected. We've already seen the first uh, Syrian delegation arriving in Riyadh from the Ministry of Tourism 
We've seen intelligence level cooperation between the two countries take shape. So I think that that dimension is going to uh, grow and become a basis for a lasting partnership. And Saudi Arabia might even shepherd Syria's return to the Arab League. Energy is another important area. I think OPEC Plus is here to stay in some way, shape, or form. Though I think a crisis like we saw in March of last year, where they both disagree over supply, Saudi Arabia wanting to cut more supply, the Russians wanting to produce more, will probably be an ongoing feature. There'll be a lot of jockeying back and forth over there. And the Russians and the Saudis may even find some common ground with respect to uh, eventually down the line, if the Biden administration pushes them hard enough, some kind of de-escalation of tensions with Iran, and maybe also on the future of Libya, where the Saudis have joined the Russians by supporting Haftar and largely supporting this notion of authoritarian stability as well. Now, Russia's gains in the region, they've come in large part, you could argue, because the U.S., under successive presidents, has decided to withdraw You know, the, uh, the famous pivot to the east. Do you think that President Biden will have a rethink as he looks at the extent of Russia's gains? Do you think he'll go, hmm, perhaps I need to have another look at the Middle East? Yeah, well, I think that uh, the talk about the pivot to the east is something that's a recurring theme in our American foreign policy. And it really, of course, dates back to Obama and the pivot to Asia, which was then subtly adjusted from an all-out pivot to a rebalance. And that was the phrase that gained a lot of popularity particularly during Obama's second term. I think exactly that's what Biden is going to be doing. He's going to be rebalancing more resources away from uh, involvement in Middle Eastern conflicts, so like getting out of Syria, getting out of Iraq. Afghanistan is also a part of this broader story. Avoiding interventions in new ones, so not getting uh, overly involved in Libya, for example. So I think that Biden is paying a lot more attention to the uh, Russian uh, footprint in the Middle East than certainly the Trump administration was. The Trump administration, even to some degree, enabled the Russian footprint by uh, really taking a, a hands-off position in Libya, which led to uh, Russia's uh, military uh, expansion and even endorsing Haftar at one point. Well, with respect to Syria, they did strike back against uh, Syrian chemical weapons use. And they maintained a residual military presence, so they were doing more to confront Russia and Syria, I think. But they. Uh, they did allow a situation that was permissive for the Russians to expand their influence in the region. And the withdrawal, I think, from the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, also gave Russia the ability to kind of show that it was a more consistent uh, diplomatic stakeholder that abided by international law, and that reaped dividends in the region as well in different ways. So the Biden administration uh, will uh, try to deal with Russian influence in several ways. They'll probably sanction Russian uh, private military companies and those that enable them in the Wagner Group, though crucially probably not the UAE in the context of Libya. They will try to uh, uh, support some of Turkey's operations in Syria, which deal with uh, humanitarian uh, refugees and, uh, and resettlement and deal with preserving that rebel foothold in Idlib, though obviously they'll disagree on the Kurds. So they'll do uh, some piecemeal moves, like, you know, targeted sanctions, uh, targeted cooperation against Syria, they might try with their re-engagement with Iran to try to distance or try to uh, create a rift between the Russians and the Iranians, so that's going to be a lot harder to do than it looks. But in, in hindsight, I think it will largely be more of a symbolic push to kind of show that we're dealing with Russia and show that we care about this issue and that we're containing them. I don't think that, given the fact that Russian policy is such a moving target and so flexible, I don't think there's all that much that the Biden administration can do 
to cause its partners in the Middle East to say, oh, we're not going to engage with Russia, we're going to choose between the United States and Russia, and just dump the Russians. Because the Russians are an ensconced part of the region's multipolar order. I think they're here to stay. Yeah, I mean, I was, the image of the Russians kind of pirouetting around and, and America stumbling uh, along trying to figure out how has this happened to us. But, but another power that's making uh, headway in the region is China uh, with a different approach, soft power, the Belt and Road Initiative, mixed with right. this uh, subtle message that we too have been victims of colonization. What sort of a challenge does China pose to Russian ambitions? So uh, in the United States foreign policy establishment, it's a very popular view to basically say Russia and China are going to uh, come in and uh, uh, basically take over if the U.S. retrenches from the Middle East. And they're going to come in as this kind of united, unitary, kind of uh, anti-Western horde, if you will, almost kind of arriving, arriving at the Middle East doorstep. And we saw that statement from a senior general just uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Frank McKenzie was talking about that, how, you know, the Russians and the Chinese are going to come in if the Americans leave. That's the conventional wisdom in the United States. I don't think we should view China and Russia as this kind of unitary bloc. As you state, Bill, you exactly note the fact that they have so many different uh, tactics, right? China's a lot more reliant on investment. It's a lot more reliant on the economic sphere. It's a lot more reliant on soft power. In that, uh, in, in that economic sense, whereas Russia is a lot more reliant on hard power, and even its soft power comes from military intervention, comes from being loyal to an ally in crisis, like they, are, like they were in Syria. So it's a very, uh, two very different uh, set of tactics and very different set of approaches. Where are their points of convergence in the Middle East? I think their points of convergence will probably be on restoring the uh, GCPOA, and kind of reviving some kind of dialogue with Iran and normalizing it with the international community. Both countries will work together on that. They both have proposed Gulf security initiatives that are strikingly similar, uh, that basically are create an OSCE-style framework where all the members of the Persian Gulf engage and talk with each other. That's really what they're, what they're aspiring towards. And they may have some uh, granular disagreements. I mean, the Chinese were in favor of the Saudi-led military intervention in Yemen. The Russians have opposed that. But by and large, I think Gulf security is an area where they'll genuinely cooperate within the United Nations at a multilateral level, and also in the context of the uh, JCPOA negotiations. I think Israel and Gaza is another area where they'll cooperate. Their positions were very, very similar during the latest crisis. Both countries are aspiring to become more involved diplomatically there. So China's uh, white papers in the Middle East and China's uh, diplomatic uh, ambitions there are limited but on one, Israel-Palestine is one of the only areas where they have a clearly articulated policy. So that's an area where they're going to come together. The Chinese, much like the Russians, can engage between the Israelis and Hamas. So that's something that they haven't really cultivated and leveraged those flexible links anywhere near as much as Russia has. But in theory, they have them. Where might they start competing? China and Russia have aligned with each other in Syria in support of Bashar al-Assad. But they're going to compete for reconstruction contracts if the uh, Syrian market opens for those. The Chinese have already invested $2 billion in, uh, or provisionally, promised, at the Damascus Trade Fair, mainly in infrastructure and mining, which are precisely some of the same sectors that the Russians are getting involved in. And China's got a lot more to offer economically that it can subsume uh, Russian state-owned companies. So a little bit of Chinese involvement is seen as good because it will encourage security sector reform in, in Syria. The Chinese businesses are not even willing to invest in Syria unless Assad makes reforms. To the security sector and changes some of the uh, worst excesses of his uh, style of government because they want a predictable stakeholder they can work with. 
and it'll also get encourage more countries in the Gulf and others maybe to invest. But too much Chinese investment will crowd Russia out. So they want uh, a little bit of China and Syria, but not too much. It's kind of like a, a Goldilocks solution over there. With respect to uh, Russian private military contractors, I think that's another area where the Chinese are going to be a bit concerned about, especially in Libya, because their use of landmines and, and some of the tactics that they've used with regards to even alleged chemical weapons use. That's not good for long-term uh, stability, and they're backing of anti-systemic actors to the hilt, like Haftar and uh, uh, the militias like the Al-Khani Brigade, whereas China was supportive of the government in Tripoli is uh, a direct conflict with their ambitions of dragging Libya into the Belt and Road Initiative and establishing investments in the Mediterranean there. So China thrives on a stable regional order, Russia thrives on disruption and an increasingly unstable regional order, as Libya demonstrates. So I think down the line, Russian private military contractors could become a source of friction with the Chinese, but probably not enough, of course, to derail their broader bilateral relationship. Finally, if Russia-China relations are to really grow in the Middle East, you need to see, start seeing Russia and China discussing these issues at a bilateral level, establishing working groups, engaging with each other. They need to talk about things going on in the region outside of the United Nations. And so far, we haven't seen that happen. Now, finally, Sam, the strategy of using the Middle East as a stage for what could be described as a, a Russian imperial power grab, going back to Catherine the Great and, and Princess Sun's comment. Meanwhile, there's this rising Arab nationalism, might that just backfire on Putin? Yeah, there's a very real risk of that backfiring, I think. I think that's a very legitimate question because uh, Russia has always framed itself as not like the old colonial powers, so not like Britain and France, not like the United States. We uh, go into the Middle East and we engage with you as you are, right? We engage with you whether you're authoritarian or democratic, it doesn't really matter to us as long as your government is stable. And there isn't, uh, and you aren't supporting transnational extremism overtly. We can work with you, and we can do business with you. So, Russia's uh, non-interference in the internal affairs of states, unwillingness to proselytize or spread its values, that's been something that's been very appealing to um, Arab nationalists, and a refreshing contrast from their point of view to the United States and Europe, which needles them on human rights uh, pretty, uh, pretty, pretty much constantly, whenever they kind of misstep. So. The question is, if Russia's influence in the region rises to the point in which they start being seen as another aspiring hegemonic power, or they start uh, establishing, for example, a network of bases in Libya, in uh, the Red Sea in Sudan, Syria, they start looking like they're kind of establishing this kind of long-term military and security footprint that kind of undermines the sovereignty of these states, then some Arab nationalists might start stepping up and taking notice and realizing that Russia is actually having a corrosive effect on their state, even, even though they're promising to support state sovereignty. And that's where the balance could get tricky. But I think we're far away from that. I think Middle Eastern states are very cognizant of Russia's limitations, and are very cognizant of the fact that Russia can engage in terms of flexible diplomacy, and it can change outcomes militarily in a, when all the, the, uh, the set of factors are, are in a row and all, everything's in their favor. Like in Syria, they have an ally on the ground, they have a regime they can work with. There's a limited array of contexts in which Russia can really project the kind of power that can rival the United States. But in most contexts, Russia is just uh, an alternative partner, a hedge partner, a country that they can uh, deal with free of uh, a transactional basis, free of all the hang-ups and constraints that accompany the West. And I think that 
the relationship between uh, Vladimir Putin and Arab nationalism, however uneasy, will lumber on as long as Russia is a secondary power, though an important one, in the region. Sam, thank you very much. Thank you so much for the invitation. It was great to be on again. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Sam Remini, a non-resident fellow at Gulf International Forum. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to ArabDigest.org. If you're a student, we have a special rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. And for academics and retirees, we are now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.